As we trace our way through the story of Elisha, my goal and my aim each week is to bring some really simple and practical lessons that all of us can understand, take hold of, and find really useful and encouraging in our Christian walk. And so this evening, um, following last week's introduction, where we saw the anointing of Elisha uh, to be the next prophet after Elijah, Elisha, uh, chosen by God, uh, named by God to Elijah, having been anointed. And now really, in 2 Kings and chapter 2, his story really begins. Uh, Elijah's ministry uh, was, in many ways, quite confrontational. Uh, Elisha's ministry is not really going to be like that. The ministry of Elisha is going to be much more one of mercy and compassion and comfort towards God's people in Israel in the midst of a nation that has been overrun with pagan worship and idolatry. That's what we'll see. And as 2 Kings chapter 2 opens, um, we see in the opening verse that uh, Elijah... His time is almost come to an end. Not uniquely, but only in a very small number. He's a man who isn't going to see physical death. God is going to take him up into heaven. And that's about to happen. And then before that happens, he and Elisha are to set out from Gilgal and they're going to trace a route uh, all the way through to the Jordan River. In some respects, it's kind of a retracing of some of the key events in Israel's history so far. Bethel, the name means house of God. Uh, we were in a church that bears that name uh, yesterday for the baptismal service, house of God. That's where God met with Jacob. Jericho, well, I think most of us are aware of the, the great story of Jericho where God demonstrated his power in bringing down the walls of that great fortified city as the people marched around it all those occasions over those days and then blew their trumpets and shouted and down came the walls. As the first uh, great step into the promised land and the Jordan River of course uh, the place where Joshua led the people of Israel uh, after their release from captivity in Egypt of course they had their 40 years of wanderings in the wilderness but here they are having arrived at that place and there in uh, Canaan they would uh, take their place and so as they make their way through some of these well-known places in the land. Um, there's something of a little bit of a reminder of all the history that's gone before. This, these are God's people whom God had set aside for himself. These are, this is God's nation uh, who he has led to this land. Uh, this is the nation from whom the Messiah will come. And yet all around them, God largely has been forgotten. 
As Graham reminded us, Elijah had got to the point where he thought he was the only true believer left. God very graciously reminds him that there are still actually thousands in the land. Uh, but they seem to be such a small and ineffective minority as this great wickedness has overtaken the land of Israel. So we're, we're reminded to some degree of the great history of this nation and the purposes of God that lie behind it all as these different places are mentioned. But as they make this journey, one of the first obvious things that we see in Elisha is his commitment to the task that God has given him. And this is a very significant thing. Every time they come somewhere, we see Elijah um, encouraging Elisha to remain where they are while Elijah goes on. But each time, Elisha insists, no, I am coming with you. Now, there is no clear or obvious ministry for Elisha at this point, other to be, as quite a few Bible commentators describe him at this point, simply an attendant alongside Elijah. He has no specific role to play, really, at this point. But Elisha is content just to be the one who walks alongside Elijah. And even if that's all I have to do, I'm going to do it. Even if there's nothing else for me to do at this point, I'm going to stay alongside this man. Now, this is an important attribute for anyone who wants to serve the Lord. And it's something that crops up in the New Testament. In the first letter to Timothy that Paul writes, where he gives the qualifications for those who are going to serve in office within the churches, he says in verse 10, where he's talking about the qualifications for those who will serve as deacons, let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons. Isn't that significant? And here is Elisha. And in a sense, he's being tested, but he's passing the test. And he's quite content simply to be at Elijah's side. Now, he knows that Elijah's departure is imminent, but he doesn't grow impatient. He just remains loyal. Such character is important in God's servants. And it's a simple lesson, but it's a significant one. Sometimes God will call you to do something which isn't high and mighty but you're to give it your all. Sometimes God will call you to do something that's not going to get much attention, not going to draw much attention to you, but you're to give it your all and be faithful. It's a simple lesson, but it's an important one. Those who would do great things must first show that they're faithful in small things. And that's what Elisha does. Elisha does. 
his commitment to the task. And in this opening part of the chapter, the next thing that we see is him refusing to trust in a man. He's refusing to trust in a man. Now, as we see, all these places that they visit, there are these prophets. There were schools of prophets in the land of Israel. And everywhere that they go, uh, they're confronted by these sons of the prophets who we read about in verse 3, who were at Bethel. And then the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho in verse 5. And they keep saying the same thing to Elisha wherever they go. Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? Now what are we to make of this question and what are we to make of Elisha's answer? Yes, I know, keep silent. Well, most of the commentators are absolutely agreed um, that these prophets were full of doom and gloom. They were all pessimistic. Basically, what is on the hearts of these prophets in all of these different locations they go to is this. How will we cope without Elijah? What will come of us without Elijah? Here you are walking around with this man. Don't you know he's about to be taken away? What's going to happen then? What are you going to do then? And it seems perhaps that one of the issues that these prophets had is they're actually looking at Elijah and they're putting their trust in a man. But Elisha doesn't do so. Elisha will have none of this and he silences them on each occasion. It's all too easy to put our trust in a man or a woman. It's all too easy to be aware of someone perhaps in some great position. It's happened in churches where there's been a really eminent pastor in ministry in the church. And there's many minds in the church thinking as this pastor's about to retire, no one can follow him. No one will ever replace him. No one's going to fill his shoes. When this man's gone, it will never be the same again. And actually, because that's how they think, it usually isn't ever the same again. It's because of how they think. How could anyone follow Pastor so-and-so? Uh, because the way you do things, that won't be how your predecessors done it. Perhaps that's what's going through the minds of these prophets. Many of the commentators suggest that they've got this really pessimistic outlook because they know Elijah is about to go. They look around the land and they, they see the, the perilous state that the nation is in. They've seen the great things that Elijah has been able to do and yet they're still aware that there's been Ahab and, and Jezebel still breathing for his life. But Elisha is altogether different and he tries to silence these men because Elisha, he, he can see things from a different perspective and from a different view. How easily we can put men on a pedestal so that those who follow can never hope to have the same degree of respect or support. And this tendency can show itself in all walks of life, not just in churches. 
Well, we're going to be reminded, even in this chapter, and we'll be reminded again as we make our way through the, the ministry of Elisha, we're going to be reminded that all of Elijah's great achievements were all down to the power of God. And as we're going to see shortly, if you haven't picked up on this already from the reading that uh, we've had, that very same God who's been with Elijah, that very same God is going to be with Elisha. That very same power that has rested upon Elijah is going to rest upon Elisha. And God may put down one instrument and pick up another. The significant thing is not the instrument. The significant thing is the hand that's holding it. And we're going to see this as we go through this chapter today. This is the significant thing. And so here's the third thing that we need to learn very carefully from this, this chapter. Elisha's God is Elijah's God. Elijah's God is Elisha's God. That's what matters. That's what matters. It is God who's at work. And the danger that we all face, you see, is we, we tend to home in on the instrument that's in God's hand. And we actually lose sight of God's hand. And all we see is the instrument he's using. But we need to see the hand that's holding the instrument all the time. And so we have this occasion as they, they go down and reach the River Jordan. It's in verse 8. Elijah takes, in our New King James Version, it uses the word mantle. It's his outer coat or his outer cloak. And he takes it off and he rolls it up and he places it into the water and the water in the river divides and the two of them can cross over on dry ground. Now, it wasn't Elijah who did that. It wasn't Elijah's coat that did that. It was God who did that. And that's something that's going to be reinforced in this chapter. And Elisha makes this request that he might indeed be Elijah's true successor. And Elijah in verse 9 puts this question to Elisha. What a question this is. Ask, what may I do for you before I'm taken away from you? Wow, this is, this is Elijah asking me this. This is the man who at the top of Mount Carmel after all the prophets of Baal have done their best and their worst to call down fire from heaven, had that great altar soaked in water and with one simple sentence of a prayer, heaven opened, God heard him and answered him and fire poured down from heaven and consumed the altar and this man is asking me, what can I do for you? Now, some egos would really start to work overtime 
in a situation like this, but not Elisha, not Elisha. Elisha says, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Now, when we first read that, it might seem that Elisha is asking to be twice the person that Elijah was, but he isn't. It might seem that Elisha is asking that he can do double the kinds of miracles that Elijah has been doing, but that's not what he's asking. It might seem that Elijah wants to be twice as popular as Elijah, twice as famous as Elijah, but that's not what he's asking. He just wants to be assured that he is indeed the man to take Elijah's place and he just wants to be certain that Elijah's God is going to be with him. After all, as we've seen, there are plenty of other prophets in Israel. Why not one of them? Is it really going to be Elisha? You see, this isn't vanity when Elisha asks for a double portion. The double portion refers to the principle of the oldest firstborn son in a family receiving a double portion of inheritance from his father, which indicates that he truly is the rightful successor. The firstborn son in the family receives the father's title. He is going to take the father's place. And that is confirmed and ratified by the father giving him a double portion over all the other sons in the family. And that is the position that Elisha wants confirmed for himself. Let me see that I am the one who is going to be taking your place. Just as the eldest son would take the father's place. It's not that the son's going to be more or less than the father. He's going to be taking that father's place. And that's what Elisha wants to be assured of. That I am going to have your place. That your God who's been with you is really going to be my God. And this is the calling that is on me. This is what Elisha is wanting. And I believe when Elijah says you've asked a hard thing. The hard thing is not that Elisha should be given the double portion. That's not the hard thing. The hard thing is the task that Elisha is actually embarking upon. That's the hard thing. You've asked a hard thing. To become God's man in this nation. To take over from me and to be the prophet in Israel is a hard thing you're asking. Nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. And of course, Elisha would see Elijah taken up into heaven. And that's confirmed. Elijah is taken, and we have this wonderful account here of the, the chariot of fire and horses of fire that drive between these two men, and Elijah is taken up into heaven in a whirlwind to be seen no more. Well, not in Old Testament days anyway. <coughs> 
And the proof is that as Elisha picks up Elijah's coat, he goes down to the River Jordan. Now, we have seen that when Elijah touched the river with his coat, the waters parted so that they could walk across. Now, if Elisha truly is the one who has stepped into Elijah's place, we would expect to see nothing less and we would expect to see nothing more. And that's exactly what we see. The water was divided this way and that, verse 14, and Elisha crossed over. And Elisha says something, doesn't he, in verse 14 there, where is the the Lord God of Elijah? Now, this isn't a cry of despair. Where are you? Are you there? Now, this, what Elisha says here, where is the Lord God of Elijah? This is a prayer that God would show himself. Come and show yourself right now. And God does. And Elisha performs exactly the same miracle. Well, it's no more Elisha doing it than it was Elijah doing it. This is God who's at work here. The same miracle takes place. And Elisha is able to walk back over the far side of the Jordan. A common theme in the Bible is to reassure all of God's people through the ages that there is but one true living God. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The God of Moses and Joshua. The God of Gideon and Samson. The God of Elijah and Elisha. The God of the apostles. The God of you and me. One God, working all things. He's, help, he's held countless instruments, countless servants in his hands through the long centuries since. But the only significant thing is the hand that's held each one. The hand that's been holding Elijah is the hand that now holds Elisha. Elijah's God is Elisha's God. And Elisha is every, much God, every bit as much God's servant as Elijah was. And if you're a Christian, so are you. Every bit as much a servant of the living God as they were. Elijah's God is Elisha's God, is the Apostle Paul's God, is your God. He's at work. He's sovereign. He's working his purposes He's in control. The same spirit of God is at work in the world, leading, directing, equipping, empowering. Elijah's God is Elisha's God. But then we see a little yes, but from the prophets. A little yes, but. Verse 15. Now, when the sons of the prophets who were from Jericho saw him, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. But now you'd have thought, well, that's it then. That's the end of it. Great. Uh, Elijah's gone, but we've got Elisha now. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Well, that sounds good. 
Then they said to him, Look, now, there are fifty strong men with your servants. Please let them go and search for your master. Your master! Lest perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And Elisha said, Don't send anyone. Now Elisha knew why it's not worth sending anyone, because Elijah wasn't to be found. Because Elijah's gone. Get used to it, guys. But they won't listen to him. Despite the evidence, despite their vocal support, the priests still can't actually accept that everything's going to be okay with Elisha standing in Elijah's place. Their confidence is not in God. Their confidence is in Elijah. So they insist on trying to find him. They're convinced that this whirlwind that took Elijah up off the ground, well, it's just kind of like it would scatter dust everywhere. Well, Elijah's just been transferred somewhere. He he can't be too far from here. That whirlwind's just set him down somewhere out of sight. If we send out a search party, we're sure to find him. He must be out there somewhere. They're just not happy to accept that Elijah is gone. God has taken him. Elisha now holds and carries and wears the mantle. Yes, Elisha, all very good. You've been able to part the water. Excellent, but we'll stick with Elijah, thank you. But God has moved on. God has installed a new instrument in Israel. But the prophets want their old one back. Oh, for the good old days, it was so much better then. It's nothing new, is it? It's what the prophets wanted. Oh, we know. Very good. We'll have Elijah back, thank you. Uh, we'll stick with what we know. It's no new thing for people to think that way. Our confidence must be in the Lord, not the instruments he happens to be using at any given time. Thank him for those instruments by all means. Pray for those instruments by all means. Put your confidence in those instruments. No. Your confidence is in God and in God alone. When we've got our heads around that issue, we'll accept whichever instrument is currently in God's hand because of whose hand they're in. Elisha now is God's man in Israel. And then one final point, which is two thoughts tied up together. And it's towards the end of this chapter. And we have these two stories. Uh, There are going to be 16 miracles recorded which are linked to the ministry of Elisha. And the first of them happens in Jericho with this water. There's bad water in Jericho. uh, Verse 19, the men of the city said to Elisha, please notice the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the ground barren. The Bible talks about curses because of sin. Curses because of sin. In Genesis 3, 
the ground was cursed because of sin. And Adam's toil in the garden was going to be difficult. There'll be thorns and thistles and weeds. And work was going to be hard. And Eve's childbearing was going to be painful. A curse came because of sin. Uh, What about Jericho? Well, back in the book of Joshua... Joshua won the battle of Jericho, as the old hymn goes. In Joshua chapter 6, we read these words. Let me just find it here. Joshua 6, verse 26. Then Joshua charged them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. And that actually is a a curse being placed upon the city of Jericho in the name of God by Joshua. And they've got this problem with the water that's coming out of this spring. It's useless. It's it's polluted. It, it, It kills things rather than gives things life. It does exactly the opposite of what water's meant to do. There's a curse upon it. Sin brings God's curse against humanity and against this world. A little bit later, there's the story of these uh, youths who mock the Lord's servant. And this awful, awful, terrible thing they say. They mock him. They insult him. They ridicule him. This is the Lord's servant. And... A curse is placed upon them. And you might think, that's all a bit severe. You know, sticks and stones and all that. Can't he wear a thicker skin? That's got nothing to do with it. It's got nothing to do with it. They're mocking the Lord's anointed one. If you do that, you're mocking the Lord. And this curse that Elisha places upon these youths shows the gravity of playing fast and loose with God and of playing fast and loose with those who are his anointed ones. And when you show a complete disregard for what God is doing and when you bring this kind of ridicule and scorn and vile mockery against his appointed representatives. Don't be surprised if God moves against it. This God is the King and Lord of the universe. This God is the source and origin of all things. He's the wisdom behind everything that we see, and he is holy and good, and he's pure, and he's just. Don't think you can mock God. And don't think that you can mock him through mocking his people and expect that God will simply benignly shrug his shoulders. What can you do? Well, we've seen what God will do. Sin is not a light, trivial thing. We don't know how many youths there were in total. We know that 42 were affected. 
We don't know if any of them were actually killed, but the language suggests that they were. The inference is that they were all killed as God orchestrated the presence of these two female bears. Where did they come from? I've no idea. But however it happened, it was God. The female bears, maybe they've got young. You've seen those wildlife documentaries. Have you seen a bear protecting her cubs? Not something you want to meet in a dark alley. Maybe all this has happened. Has God orchestrated all of this event so that as this happened, at this time, at this place, there's these two female bears with these young who they're going to protect at all costs and out they come and tear these boys to shreds? God can do that. Sin is serious. Sin brings God's curse. But, 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 Look what happened in Jericho. Because yes, God brings the curse, but God also brings blessing. And that's the message of the Bible from beginning to end. And that's the message of the gospel. Yes, God brings curse upon sinful men and women. He must. But where there has been a curse, there is also blessing. Look what happened back in Jericho. This bad water is the result of a curse. And they get this new pot and they put salt in it and put it in the water. Now, Jericho's done nothing to deserve this. The curse is being lifted by God's grace. Nothing else. The salty water just to draw our attention to what's happening look at verse 21 he went out to the source of the water it's a spring the water's coming out all the time all the time all the time and it's bad 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 and he puts the bowl of salty water in the spring now what's going to happen to the salt in a spring that's flowing the salt's just going to wash away because it's not the salt that's going to clean the water it's God. Look what's said in the middle of verse 21. Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. It's not the salt. God did it. Because this is a spring that's flowing. Within no time at all, all that salt is gone. Down the stream, gone. But that spring just kept bringing clean water, clean water, clean water. Why did it keep bringing clean water? Because God had cleaned it and it was staying clean. Here in these verses is a glorious picture. On the one hand of the necessity of God to deal with sin and to act against sinners. That's what he does. It's in the scriptures from beginning to end. But on the other hand, to display grace and to remove the curse and to bring cleansing and to bring blessing because that's what God does too. 
in closing, turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to read from verse 10. Galatians 3 verse 10. As many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. It's written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Anyone here? Can you put your hand up? I have done all things written in God's law. No, I'll have to take my hand down with you. Cursed is everyone because we cannot do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Way back in 2 Kings chapter 2, God, out of his sheer grace and mercy, removed the curse and brought cleansing. And that cleansing never ceased. As sinners, we are under God's curse. And by his free grace, God will bring cleansing. And if you will turn to Christ, the one who has redeemed you from the curse of the law, as surely as that water was made clean forever, you too will be made clean forever. Because yes, sin has brought upon us a great curse. But this God is all loving and kind and gracious and merciful. And by his grace, he has provided the way for the curse to be lift, lifted and for cleansing to enter. And it can be yours this evening if you've never known it before through Christ.